Welcome to the Antioch Podcast. We're a justice-minded Christian church in beautiful Bend, Oregon, seeking and celebrating the reconciliation of all things. May the word of Christ dwell in you fully and give you peace. The scripture reading today is from the book of Genesis, chapter 4, verses 1 through 16. Adam made love to his wife Eve, and she became pregnant and gave birth to Cain. She said, with the help of the Lord, I have brought forth a man. Later, she gave birth to his brother Abel. Now Abel kept flocks, and Cain worked the soil. In the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord, and Abel also brought an offering, fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. The Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering, but on Cain and his offering, he did not look with favor. So Cain was very angry, and his face was downcast. Then the Lord said to Cain, "'Why are you angry?' Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. Now Cain said to his brother Abel, let's go out to the field. While they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, Where's your brother Abel? I don't know, he replied. Am I my brother's keeper? The Lord said, What have you done? Listen, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. Now you are under a curse and driven from the ground, which opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it will no longer yield its crops for you. You will be a restless wanderer on earth. Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is more than I can bear. Today you are driving me from the land, and I will be hidden from your presence. I will be a restless wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. But the Lord said to him, Not so. Anyone who kills Cain will suffer vengeance seven times over. Then the Lord put a mark on Cain so that no one who found him would kill him. So Cain went out from the Lord's presence and lived in the land of Nod, east of Eden. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning. Well, my name is Sean. I'm one of the pastors on our team here, and I'm glad to be with you all this morning. Today, we are in the fourth Sunday of Summertide, and we're continuing on in our journeys through some of the high points in this big narrative in the book of Genesis. By way of a quick recap, uh, we began this journey, page one, Genesis one, looking at the first creation account and uh, what that teaches us about who created all this, God, and why he created it out of love. We also examined the second creation account, which I I know was a new concept for some of us, and we were trying to understand God as a gardener and our role to be gardeners as well. 
And last week, Pete touched on the fall, what it looks like when we begin to place our trust in other places or people or things besides placing our trust in God, even when we put our trust in ourselves. Our story today picks up right after our story from last week, where as a consequence of their choices together, Adam and Eve have just been expelled from the garden. And this story of uh, Cain and Abel is one in which we know well. I'm sure uh, when Medell was reading our text today, there weren't a ton of surprises to you. When Cain says, let's go out in the field, you're not wondering what's going to happen next, right? Like, you know what is going to happen next. Uh, This is a story that has permeated our culture writ large. It's not just Christians or Jews that know the story. It is extremely well known. It's the original sibling rivalry, and there are all sorts of famous sibling rivalries. Uh, In Roman mythology, we have Romulus and Remus. Uh, We see it in all different types of literature, Uh, sibling rivalry in uh, Little Women or Pride and Prejudice, a few more than two siblings, but sibling rivalry is present. Uh, I am not good with their names, but I know that it's present with one of the Kardashians to another Kardashian. Um, In movies, uh, we see it. Uh, and the Godfather, Michael and Fredo. Fredo gets passed up uh, for the job. The blessing is not given to him. He is very angry with that. Or maybe most aptly connected to our story in The Lion King. Okay? Think about it. Scar, Mufasa, Cain, Abel. It makes a lot of sense, right? Yeah. You didn't know Disney was teaching all these Bible lessons. So, for those of you who are siblings or you're the parents of siblings, you know that sibling rivalry uh, is real, even if you are on good terms with your siblings. I am the youngest of three boys, so I know a thing or two about sibling rivalry. And uh, when we were young, we were always getting after each other, but uh, it was the worst, according to my parents, whenever we would go in the car altogether. Um, We would always run to the car and fight about who got to sit where. Is this still a thing with children? Yes, okay. Uh, Particularly when we were all old enough, who got to sit in the coveted front seat? And we would, you know, race each other, and we would tackle each other, and then uh, we, they said we had to set up, my parents said we had to set up rules for it. So then it was, okay, who called it first, right? Uh, then no, it was who got there first. And uh, my oldest brother would proclaim that he was the oldest, and it was his birthright <laughs> as the firstborn and the biggest to get to sit in the front seat. And uh, obviously my brother, my other brother and I didn't agree with that assessment. So we fought tooth and nail. Finally, after being so entirely fed up, my mom was done with all the bickering and she made the proclamation to end all proclamations. From now on, Sean gets the front seat every time. (laughs) Pays to be the most loved and the youngest, right? That is true. Uh, My brothers were not happy. Uh, Like the text says, they were very angry and their faces were downcast. Um, My mom not taking feedbacks or amendments. It was great for me personally. Uh, As good older brothers, uh, they got me back for that in other ways, but, you know, we understand sibling rivalry. And, you know, as I said before, our story starts right after Adam and Eve have been uh, sent away from the Garden of Eden. In in that story, we heard how uh, living in God's world on God's terms was enough of a problem uh, for Adam and Eve themselves. And what we see in our text today is that to live with God's other creatures, particularly your brother is even more of a dilemma, even more of a challenge. So the story starts like this. Adam made love to his wife Eve and she became pregnant and gave birth to Cain. 
She said, uh, with the help of the Lord, I have brought forth a man. So uh, this word that we translate as made love in Hebrew is yada. So uh, this first sentence reads, Adam yada yada with Eve, and she became pregnant. That's true. That's real. I looked it up. That's not where that comes from, but that I, that I just had to say it, right? So anyway, these, these first two verses, they, they set the stage for the rest of this little story. We're, we're quickly learning who the characters are. We see Adam and Eve, who we know from our story before, but also their firstborn son, Cain. Verse 2 tells us uh, the remaining character in context. Later, she gave birth to his brother, Abel. Now Abel kept flocks and Cain worked the soil. So already in these first two verses, whether we noticed it immediately or not, uh, we're beginning to see the contrast between these two brothers, Cain and Abel. Cain uh, has serious uh, firstborn energy. Some of you have that too. I'm married to one. Uh, unfortunately, uh, as we'll see throughout the story of Genesis, whether it's Isaac and Ishmael, uh, Jacob and Esau, firstborns do not tend to fare well. So Sorry to all you proud eldest children out there, but uh, we see that Eve gives Cain his name, and his name is derived from the word for uh, acquiring or creating. His name is given as a sign of Eve's partnership with God. It's, it's given to, to, as a name to praise God, as a mark of closeness with God. As firstborn, he embodies future possibility. His entire life is ahead of him. Well, Abel, on the other hand, uh, his name means nothing, like literally. Um, you know in Ecclesiastes when it says, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. The word that is used there is hevel, which we say as able. It translates as meaningless or vapor. So something without the possibility of life or success. So hypothetically, imagine you are a parent of two children. You name the first one co-created with God. And the second kid rolls around and you name them meaningless. Uh, might not be the best strategy to create strong familial bonds. But outside of that, the story does start fairly positively. In Genesis 3, uh, Adam and Eve, they were told to be fruitful and multiply. We got check, you know, yada, yada, we got that one. Uh, they've been told to care for animals. Abel is taking care of that. And they've been told to care for the earth. Cain is doing that. He is tending to the ground. So... It starts off good, and in our heads, when we think about this story, we tend to think of Cain as some type of kind of primordial villain. And the question is, is that really true? So uh, verse 3, the story continues. In the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord. And Abel also brought an offering, fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. So worship of the Lord must have been presumed, so the brothers each do what is appropriate. Cain is the firstborn. He brings an offering from his area of responsibility and his area of expertise. Uh, and then the text says, and Abel also brought. So in Hebrew, this phrase means similarly. So Abel brought a similar offering to Cain. He was imitating the high quality of Cain's offering. He does it from his area of expertise with cattle. So we, as the readers, or the original listeners to the story, we are supposed to be as stunned as Cain was by the Lord's response to the offering that he brings. Verse 4, it says, The Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering, but on Cain and his offering he did not look with favor. So Cain was very angry, and his face was downcast. 
Okay, so why did God look uh, with favor on Abel's offering but not on Cain's? There have been all sorts of hypotheses given for why this is the case. Uh, Could it be that Abel brought the firstborn of his flock and Cain uh, merely provided, you know, some leftover fruit from imperfect foods? Uh, Could it be that uh, Abel brought the fatty portions, uh, the choicest selections that would later be described in the book of Leviticus as the ideal offering? Could it be that the Lord prefers to go out to eat at Bas Taurus versus active culture, right? Uh, we don't know. And I don't think that we are supposed to know. Because I think it's feeding into this question, this perception that we have of Cain, because it sure seems like he came up with the idea to bring an offering first. Like any younger brother, Abel just did uh, what his big brother was doing and says his offering was similar. So is Cain really all bad. There isn't anything in the text to tell us why he was disqualified at this point. And his response, literally the text tells us that he was hot with anger. And so how does God respond to both this hot anger and these feelings of sadness? In verse 6, he says this. He says, then the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. So a couple things are happening here. First, uh, we actually see a mimicking of the story of Adam and Eve. They were given a choice whether to believe what God says or to believe what the snake says. Cain is given the option to choose. How is he going to respond to uh, what he feels is a slight against him, a slight against his offering? Will he choose, in response to this, to do what is right, or will he choose to not do what is right? Because on top of all that, there is nothing in the text to tell us that God was only going to look on one offering with favor for all time. So it wasn't like a, a one-time opportunity. We see that Cain is doubting God's generosity. He's assuming that there will be no exaltation or blessing or acceptance given to him just because Abel has received one already. And this is a further mimicking of the snake's questions. The snake asked, did God really say that? But here it's, will God be generous enough for both of you? For him, will there be enough for me? And that last sentence may be the heart of this story, but if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. God knows that Cain is angry. He knows that he is feeling downcast. He knows that with those feelings, he might have a proclivity to respond in a certain way. And the big picture question being discussed here is this, in a post-Genesis 3 world, a a post-fall world, can a person do what is right? Can they do good? Can they live well? Or are they condemned to a life of sin, of doing what is not right? Do they have no say in the matter, some type of original sin? And this is the crux of the story in uh, John Steinbeck's famous novel, East of Eden. If you remember that book, Steinbeck, uh, he focuses on this Hebrew word called timshel, which uh, on a different translation is translated as thou mayest. 
Here in our text, you see it as you must. Uh, Instead of you must rule over sin, it talks about as thou mayest rule over sin. In the book, you, you may remember this, but Lee's research of the word as it pertains to the Cain and Abel story emphasizes the nature of possibility. That in this speech to Cain, God tells him that he has a choice whether to overcome sin. Wasn't preordained that he would do this. For Lee, this idea of free choice over evil is central to the human condition, and it's how Cal is finally able to see that he can overcome his family's legacy of evil. In the same way here, we see that Cain's future is open. It's open to promise and to hope, which is what God is hoping that he is going to choose, but it's also open to darkness and danger and despair but his fate is not sealed. And just as important is this discussion of sin crouching at Cain's door. Uh, There's a great Hebrew scholar named Ari Lam who dove into this recently, but uh, God says that sin desires to have him. And uh, this word used here for desire, it's only used three times in all of scripture, including this instance right here, so two other times. The first time it was used was just a few verses ago when God curses Adam and Eve in Genesis 3.16. He says to Eve, your desire, same word, will be for your husband and he will rule over you. But there's one problem is desire probably isn't the best way for us to understand this word. Maybe a better way would be to think of it as hunger. Now, This is gonna sound strange, but stick with me here because it's gonna be important for the synthesis of our story. But when we understand this word differently, we see that when it talks about the desire for your husband, that he shall rule over you, isn't referring to uh, Eve's carnal desire for her husband. It's previewing Adam's own curse related to agriculture, which comes in the very next verse. Adam's curse is that he will need to work the ground for food, and Eve, when she's hungry, she'll need to rely on an unreliable man. Your hunger shall be directed towards your husband, so he shall rule over you. It's not a statement about marriage or sexual desire or anything like that. It's about the tragedy of hunger and of dependency. As we saw last week, the sin of Adam, it introduced hierarchy and power into human affairs where before there was none. So we begin to see why God references his own words to Eve when he speaks to Cain. I mean, put yourself in Cain's shoes. You've just approached God with an offering, maybe the first in history to do so, and you experience rejection. To make things worse, your brother, a literal nobody, a vapor, he's meaningless, he finds God's favor when he was just imitating you. So why is Cain downcast? My best guess is that he is asking himself, Am I not good enough for God? And I don't know about you, but this has certainly been a part of my life and my story of seeing others seemingly get rewarded or blessed or flourishing or whatever it is, and I wonder to myself in different seasons of my life, why wasn't that happening to me? Maybe you've felt the same way about other people in relationships or getting married or having kids or having multiple kids or getting jobs or getting that promotion or even just seeming like their life is all sorted out, seeming free and easier in life. Why do they receive the blessings like Abel and us like Cain? We don't get those things. Well, I think that God is trying to intervene with Cain before those thoughts get too far. 
He warns Cain against the dangerous side of hunger and dependency in judging yourself by another. In this speech, again, God doesn't explain why he accepts one offering and rejects the other. But what he does say to Cain is in response to that rejection, you have a choice about what you'll do next. You can continue to obsess over Abel's relationship with me. That will only invite sin, uh, literally the croucher at your door, to rule over you. Or, with my help, you can choose to rule over sin. And we don't see uh, what Cain says in response, but we do see what happens next. Now Cain said to his brother Abel, let's go out to the field. And while they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother and killed him. So if you are a Yellowstone fan, this is the equivalent of taking Abel to the train station, okay? So for a horrendous event, it's a short description without much fanfare. We see Cain has not ruled over sin, but he has been ruled by sin. He's been overcome by the darkness that was waiting at his door to ambush him. And then in another mimicking of the story of Adam and Eve, we see God ask a similar but slightly different question to the one that he asked Adam in the garden. To Adam, he asked, where are you? Verse 9 says, then the Lord said to Cain, where is your brother Abel? So rather than asking where are you, we see God emphasizing Cain's responsibility for the other, for his brother. Not where are you, but where is the one that you are responsible for, your brother? And in the most snot-nosed, little brother type of way, one in which I can speak with authority on, uh, Cain responds, I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? You know, Cain tries to dodge the question, you know, huh? What brother? Who? Abel? I barely knew the guy, right? Even beyond trying to dodge this question, under the surface, Cain is questioning God. What, me? My brother's keeper? I'm supposed to watch over the fields and the farm. You're the one who is supposed to be taking care of him, aren't you? That's not my job. That's your job. And so verse 10 says, the Lord said, what have you done? Listen, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. And we see in this world of Genesis that there is an assumption that everything in the world is connected. An act against a person skews the world. Even the ground itself knows it. And perhaps this even sheds light on our own relationship with the rest of creation, where it seems to be protesting and crying out the way in which we've been treating it. And so God sentences Cain to a punishment where he will no longer be able to do the only thing he knows how to do. And then in verse 13, Cain says back in response, my punishment is more than I can bear. Today you are driving me from the land and I will be hidden from your presence. I will be a restless wanderer on the earth and whoever finds me will kill me. Cain tries, you know, every legal defense in the book. You know, the punishment doesn't fit the crime. It's not fair. I, I don't deserve this. I'm just going to die anyways out there. Uh, but verse 15 says, the Lord says, not so. Anyone who kills Cain will suffer vengeance seven times over. Then the Lord put a mark on Cain so that no one who found him would kill him. We don't know what this mark is, but we do know that it's important. And it's strange. 
And this is a weird story. And my hunch is I don't need to tell you that killing your brother is bad. Like on a baseline level, you've got that. Uh, but what do we do with this story today? A couple things. First, uh, we have to return to our conversation about desire and hunger and dependency. We saw that God gave Cain a choice, a choice to choose God, to work with God, to crush the hunger that comes from sin, and Cain chooses death instead. He chooses power over his brother rather than power over himself. Rather than repairing the sin of Adam and Eve, he continues on this downward trajectory. He didn't have to. It wasn't his fate, but he chose to make that decision. And this word, hunger and dependency, it can be a curse because it, it taught us power. It, its distortion can lead to one person dominating another person. But that power can also be used to rule over sin because sin needs humans to exist. It's dependent on us. And this same word can give us the power to defeat it. In order to figure that, we gotta look at the third time this word is used in the Bible. And it comes from Song of Songs, which is a complicated book full of yada, yada, yada. But in chapter seven, we find the lover, who is a metaphor for Israel, proclaim about her beloved, a metaphor for God, say this, I belong to my beloved and his desire is for me. That's it, this is the third time this word is used, only times it's used in the Old Testament. The only other times we've seen this word used in the Bible, it referred to the curse of Eve, that curse of dependency and power. It referred to the repercussions for her son Cain, but here it refers to God. Song of Songs is telling us that dependency is only a curse if we make it so. Because in this case, the one who experiences dependency is not Eve towards Adam, it's not sin towards Cain or Cain towards Abel, it's God towards us. So yes, dependency can be a curse. It can be hunger, desire, envy, helplessness. We see this in Adam and Eve. We see this in Cain and Abel. But that very curse can also become a blessing. Like the discussion that Pete had about trust last week, when it is put in the wrong place, it will let you down. It's the same thing with dependency. If we put our dependency in the wrong place, it will let us down. Sin will rule over us. But if we can be dependent on God, rather than looking to our own resources, only then do we have the capacity to overcome the pull that sin has in our lives. Even with just the three uses of this word, we see, again, the first time in Genesis 2 that it can bring evil into the world. Our story here in Genesis 4 shows us that we have the capacity to transform evil into good, but we might fail like Cain. And this third use reminds us that God himself is with us as we keep trying. That when we are dependent on God himself, we can live differently. That the more we place our dependence in God, the more we begin to flip the, around the question that Cain asks of God. Instead of asking, am I my brother's keeper? We begin to ask, how can I be my brother's keeper today? Well, this story shows how relationships can be fractured. Jesus shows us that loving our brothers and sisters is an essential part of our faith. That the life and love of Jesus calls us to expand actually who we think of when we think of our brothers and sisters. 
So yes, it should absolutely start with your flesh and blood, and for some that might be easier, and for some that might be hard. But when Jesus talked about brothers and sisters, he meant it to refer to every other human person. If we are all children of God the Father, then we are all brothers and sisters. He wanted us to expand who he thought of as brothers and sisters because to be a brother or to be a sister is in fact to be a keeper. That's part of the deal. That's, you can't have one without the other. This is important to Jesus' teaching. Even when Jesus teaches about murder in the Sermon on the Mount, he raises the stakes for us. Paraphrasing, he says, you have heard it said that anyone who murders is subject to judgment, but I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Maybe he knew we'd be looking at this text, not feel super challenged with the moral of don't murder your brother. So he elevates this issue. He knew that fractured relationships would require work in our hearts towards our brothers and sisters. We couldn't just not murder them, but we had to even take away feelings of anger towards them. And just after uh, the Beatitudes, he even tells those uh, who would hear that before they can turn to the things of God, before they can come to the altar, they have to settle things with their brother or sister first. In 1 John, it actually talks about the story of Cain and Abel, and it then says this. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? Dear children, let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and in truth. The miracle of new life, the wonder of resurrection, is tied to loving your brother and your sister. And part of what all went wrong in Genesis 3 with Adam and Eve and then was exacerbated in Genesis 4 with Cain and Abel was that it brought disunity to relationships. Power and dependency were brought into the equation and we began to have enmity with one another. There was these hierarchical relationships when they weren't there. Power distorted it. And there's so much distortion that Cain killed his very own brother. But in Jesus, we see the potential of reconciliation. We see the importance of loving our brothers and sisters and neighbors and friends and even our enemies. That in Jesus, we are shown a better way because we understand that all people are our brothers and sisters and we are in the same boat as them. Because even after Cain had done the most horrible thing, even when he was sent away by God, God still put his mark of protection on him. Again, we don't physically know what this mark looked like, but this scarlet letter that Cain was given, it marked him with both guilt and grace. Yes, he was guilty of the most heinous crime. He was a sinner. He had allowed sin to rule over him. But at the same time, he was still protected by the grace of God. And again, our stories have made Cain out to be the ultimate bad guy. I think you and I aren't that different from him. Because the cross marks each one of us with both guilt and grace as well. We fail, we mess up, we let the sin crouching at the door take over us in moments. 
We're envious of those around us. We're jealous of what they have or who they are. We might look down on those less fortunate than us or at the very least be indifferent to them. We constantly choose our way over God's way, not because we have to or not because it's our fate, but because we choose to. And yet, despite all of that being true, God still marks us with grace. He still calls us back to him. He still welcomes us like the prodigals, like the true father with open arms. You and I, just like Cain, are marked by guilt and grace. And when it comes to guilt and grace, I wonder if we might all ask ourselves where we see ourselves choosing guilt over grace in our lives. If Jesus elevated even being angry with our brothers or sisters in his discussion of murder, we can ask, how am I doing this today? How am I relating to my brothers and sisters? Who am I angry with? Who am I judging? Who am I not offering grace to? Is it someone at home? Is it someone at work? Is it in my friendships or my relationships? Is it with the rest of creation? Is it with the poor? Is it with those who uh, vote differently than I do? Am I offering them guilt or am I offering them grace? And then the question becomes, what will we choose to do with the grace that we've been offered? Will we live lives that reflect the unbounded generosity of God, believing that he has blessings for each one of us? If Jesus tells us that we are to demonstrate our love by laying down our lives for the other, how am I doing that in my life? Will we lay down our lives by giving up rivalries and competition with one another? Will we lay down our pursuits to rid ourselves of jealousy and choose encouragement? Will we lay down our privileged access to resources to care for creation well for the sake of our brothers and sisters around the world? Will we give up some of our own rights, our own prefer preferences, our own privileges, even if it disadvantages us, if it means laying down ourselves for the sake of our brothers and sisters? Can we lay down our votes as it see it as an opportunity to vote for our brothers and our sisters, even if it disadvantages us? How can we lay down our lives to give our love, our time to others, and instead of offering them guilt, offer them grace instead? Barbara Brown Taylor is one of my uh, heroes in the faith, and she says, every human interaction offers you the chance to make things better or to make things worse. I don't know what that might look like in your life or your relationships or friendships, but I do know that choosing grace and laying down our lives tends to make things better, not worse for others. Because what we see in these opening few chapters of Genesis is that there is a goodness that resides in each one of us. Sin came into the picture and muddied the waters, but that doesn't change our original goodness. And if we're willing to put our desire, our hunger, and our dependence on God, the Holy Spirit works with us to overcome sin and to live right, to love our brothers and sisters, whether we know them or not, with the same love of Jesus. So, Antioch family, may we be a people who are dependent on God. May we know that we've been marked with both guilt and grace. May we lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters as we choose grace each and every day. Amen.